Hella Black, episode 96. At it again, getting close to 100, you feel me? But, you know, we back at it with this Black Radical Month, talking this Black Radical shit, per yep. usual. Every month, every day, you feel me? We it ain't on me, it's in me, but it's on me. <laughs> <laughs> Say that one more time, just so people hear it. It ain't on me, it's in me, but it's on me. Come on. <laughs> uh, I'm very, very excited for this episode. You know, we got a, a very special guest here with us. Um, to talk some more black radical shit and, you know, neo-colonialism and a whole bunch of shit. Um, but yeah, Sharice, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm hanging in there, black. <laughs> the sun is out in the bay today. <laughs> the sun is out. That's that's good. Yeah, It's like 70 degrees out, but now this is a, a, a dope you know, full circle moment. I think I was telling you a few months back, like, you know, I, I remember you as, you know, one of the first GSIs. So I was like, damn, like, you just really with the shit. You feel me? You just being yourself unapologetically in the space at like UC Berkeley. That's a, a place where that shit don't be happening. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I appreciate it. I don't it. understand I, how people, <laughs> yeah, I just don't understand how people don't be themselves. It's like, you know, who else can you be? But thank you. I appreciate that. Cause I sure do just be showing up as regular ass me. So <laughs> yeah, you was for sure just talking your shit. That shit was, <laughs> you was talking your shit all the time. I, I really appreciated that. You you were doing grad school at Cal? Yeah, I did. I did my uh, master's and PhD in African diaspora studies there. For sure. Where are you from? Arizona. Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. When, when the last time you, you came to the Bay? You know, I was there and I guess that was 2017. Um, it was like the 20th anniversary of the PhD program, but I don't think I've been. Oh, that, that's not true. I interviewed for a job at Berkeley last year. I forgot about that shit. Literally like right when the, it was like February, 2020, like right, be, right before the pandemic hit, I, I interviewed in the Department of Rhetoric there. I didn't get that job. Clearly, <laughs> but that's the last time I was there. You you in Chicago now? Yeah, I am. Teaching? No, I'm on sabbatical, so I'm um writing technically, but mostly just you know doing shit like this. I ain't making that far in school. I don't even know what the fuck that means. <laughs> oh, okay. So sabbatical. So at my college, we get what's called a junior sabbatical. So after your third year, you get a certain amount of time off. Um, paid. So that's why I'm on a fellowship here at University of Chicago, but I work at a school called Carlson College in Minnesota. Okay. That's what's up. So let's, yeah, let's, let's get into it. Um, I think the first question is just like, you know, what led to you being politicized, you know, especially through, you know, a, a, a Black radical lens? Like, what, what was that process for you? You know, I don't have a, I always say this, I don't have an activism or organizing background. I'm just, you know, an academic. So I really just came to consciousness through, you know, studying and, um, you know, analysis. Um, it's interesting. When I was an undergraduate, I first came to consciousness through Afrocentrism. And so like, you know, uh, a lot of, and you know, I talked to a lot of my friends and they have a similar trajectory where, you know, you go through your white purge, like you go natural, you watch, you know, um, 
500 years later. I personally watched John Henry Clark's A Great and Mighty Walk and I read, you know, Now Valley Contribution and Civilization and, um, you know, um, all, all the all the Black Afrocentric stuff. And so that was that was sort of how I came to consciousness about a sort of political Blackness. Like I always, you know, knew I was Black, of course, you know, I always, you know, loved and respected black shit but in terms of thinking about a political consciousness as it relates to um to blackness it was really i would say probably undergraduate and and actually um there were, it was my sophomore year i took this intro to african-american studies class and then that summer so i was like maybe spraying 2000 whatever and then um that summer I checked out like 50 books from the library and I just read them all and I was like okay and so that's when I shifted from being like a history I was a history and a political science major and then I became um, a a black studies and a political science major and then that was it Um, so yeah that's sort of how I came to a political consciousness Um, I moved more towards sort of black anti-capitalism and Marxism Um, I took this class in undergrad called The Making of Modern Africa that was basically about economic development. And then, you know, I started to see all the fuckery of the relationship between Europe and Africa and, you know, Europe and America to the rest of the world. And and then that's when I read, you know, Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then I got interested in, you know, economic development and just became, I guess, more Black Marxist over time. So that's sort of, that's it. That's the story. (laughs) <laughs> you you talk about being um in the academy being a, a academic and so what, what do you think the role for black radicals um in the what do you think the role what do you think the role is for black radicals in and out of the academy i think um like as of late i've been trying to do some processing because i think you know at kind of towards the end of my my college time i started getting into student activism um and i think with that I began to to gain some like disdain for black college students um, just because we spend so much time talking, talking, talking and rightfully so in learning and doing things that impact the the campus um, and our safety on campus and our resources on campus. But we didn't really do too much off campus. Um, So, yeah, what do you think the role for for black radicals is uh, in the academy and out of the academy? Yeah, so I, you know, as the undergraduate, I was really deep into black student, um, you know, I would say black student activism. I was the president of the black student government at my college, Arizona State, it was called the Black and African Coalition. You know, I planned like Black History Month and founded this organization for black women called, I was a co-founder called Nzinga Sisterhood Circle. So I was really heavily into that as well. But I would say as an academic, our job, you know, basically, one thing I will say is that I'm in academia, but I'm not really of it. Like my politics are completely divergent than I would say the overwhelming majority of um, academics. And, you know, I like to think that I committed, you know, class suicide, so to speak, whereby like theoretically I'm part of like the black petty bourgeoisie, but um, I'm always trying to be oriented towards working class and poor people because I think that those that, that is the most important group within um, our community. And I think that the job of Black radicals in the academy is to create like maroon spaces, spaces where we can do real work that matters to Black people. And, um, you know, people talk about speaking truth to power or whatever, but like, I I don't know, whatever. I think we need to speak truth to each other um, and speak truth 
with each other, right? And, you know, so Cabral talks about, um, you know, hiding nothing from the people and claiming noisy victory. So I think that's, that's one job. And then Walter Rodney talks about being a guerrilla intellectual, which means like raging struggle where you're at. So whether it, it, that means pushing back against like dominate cat cannons or dominant way of understanding, whether that means like, you know, having your students back when they do organize and they do um, wage campaigns against the administration, whether it be, you know, having solidarity with contingent faculty. So that means like faculty who don't have tenure and who aren't tenure track who tend to be in a much more precarious situation than tenure track faculty. I also think our job is to redistribute um, knowledge and resources. So not only to make our own work accessible, but also, you know, to disseminate knowledge or to be outward facing, if you will, so that we're not just in an echo chamber. So to really be deeply rooted in what's happening beyond the academy and to do work that matters to what's actually happening on the ground and also to, to hold space as much as possible to amplify the voices of people who are actually doing the work. So, you know, I talk about on Twitter, like shut the fuck up as praxis. And I think that black <laughs> academic, just academics in general need to do that more and just, you know, hold space. You're going to ring a nerve with that them doing that. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> anyway, well. You know, they'd be sensitive. <laughs> you know they'd be sensitive. They do. <laughs> mm, that's great. But who's going to check me is the question. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, what we need to do is sort of, you know, if we have opportunities, really take those opportunities to think with people who are outside of the academy. You know, I'm trained in Black studies. I'm classically trained, which means I have a, a BA, MA, and PhD in the field. And part of what, you know, the Black studies training is about gown and town. That is to say, bringing together academia and surrounding communities. And so, um, you know, I've tried to be oriented to that with varying degrees of success, but I would say doing even doing podcasts like this, that's for uh, just a lay audience, right, to just be able to have regular conversations and just talk my shit in ways that um, move just beyond the classroom and move beyond the campus. But those are just some of the, you know, some of the roles or responsibilities. And that's the thing is like, I think people take being an academic as a privilege, but it's a responsibility. Like we have a responsibility to people to tell the truth and to do work that matters and to share our work beyond our narrow little circles. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. Jaleel Montekin talks about that. Like you made the point of taking what you learned and using it for the lumping proletariat, the 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 poor. Um, and you think about the role that the academy played in the in the forming of the Black Panthers, right? Like that's literally where them niggas linked up at. But they didn't just stay on that campus. When they got done with that, them niggas went down the street, started patrolling, started organizing for stoplights, and started feeding kids. And so I think that the academy has been reduced um, since then, and niggas have just turned it into these echo chambers and circle jerk intellectual masturbating rooms. But like it got a, it got for for black radicals, it it, it does have a, a place. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that. Um, well, you know, the other thing that Walter Rodney said that I always quote and I try to keep in mind is that intellectuals are the enemies of the people until proven otherwise. And I think that we constantly need to prove otherwise because, you know, our, our powers can be used for good. How has it been, you know, trying to push the black radical shit, especially in, you know, like black studies departments or African-American studies departments that 
you know, in my opinion, have kind of moved in some ways to being a little bit more conservative than, you know, the radical, you know, the revolutionary founding of these departments. So how has that been for you? Like, you know, obviously being this black radical person and I know for myself, it's been difficult and kind of can be kind of isolating when you're in a space where it's like you around your own people, but you know, sometimes those folks ain't with the shit, you know? So like, how, how's that been for you? Well, I'm one, you know, I believe in collect collective cooperative and um, community oriented um, scholarship practice, what have you. So I, I build those communities for myself. I mean, I'm on a campus where I'm one of three black women. And as you're saying, like, though, I'm the only person, only black woman on the campus that teaches black studies. And so, you know, I travel a lot. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I build my own communities. And again, as I said, like, I just keep in mind that I'm in, I'm in the academy. It's my occupation. And it's, and it's something that I love, you know, I love to be a, a knowledge producer and a, an educator, but at the same time, I'm not of this. And so I just have communities of people who are, um, not academics, but I also have community with like the six radicals <laughs> um, and who are, you know, black radicals in the academy, you know, yeah. all, you know, the seven of us, we just click right. up or whatever. And so, um, and I also like, you know, I, um, I kind of just do what I want. Like how you said, I show up, how, how I showed up as your graduate student instructor. That's just how it is. And so I say what I got to say and keep it moving and let the chips fall where they may. I always told myself I would get as far as I get in the academy being myself, which means to me being outspoken, being principled and having courage. And so, um, you know, that's just what it is. I, I, you know, I'll be lying if I said there wasn't some part of it that is very, it can be, um, it can be exhausting, right? It can be, and it can be really, sometimes you can start to internalize the types of things that people say but you know that's the that is the purpose of of joining an organization which i did actually recently and just being in community is that it lets you know you're not crazy and it sort of edifies you against all the you know the bourgeois bullshit yeah a thousand percent uh you know you've already talked a little bit about uh walter rodney um and you describe yourself as a as a rodneyite uh can you describe what that means for you Yeah, so it's just another way basically to say that I'm a black Marxist. And so a lot of people who are Marxists came to it through like Karl Marx or Lenin or maybe Rosa Luxemburg or whomever. Like I came to Marxism through black folks. So whether it be Walter Rodney, Emil Car Cabral, um, Franz Fanon, Claudia Jones, William Patterson, Louise Thompson Patterson, Esther Cooper Jackson, Vicki Garvin, Shirley Graham Du Bois, W.E.B., you know, later W.E.B., Paul Robeson, and I could go on and on and on. These are the people who I learned, you know, dialectical materialism and scientific socialism from. Um, and I learned it. And so I always took the quote unquote Negro question or the Black experience as central, period. But I think that Marxism or dialectical materialism is a useful methodology for understanding history and for understanding social relations. Um, and so, and I think that's very much Walter Rodney, like he's Guyanese, um, but he was also a Pan-Africanist. He was also a black power person. Like he believed in black power. He believed in African liberation. And so 
those were, that was his quote unquote, um, locus of enunciation, if you will. That was the position from which he spoke. And so people talk about how Eurocentric Marxism is okay, but we can't deny the fact that all of these black people, all these the people that we bang with found Marxism to be useful because they just articulated it to their own historical and material and contextual conditions. And so, you know, when I say that I'm a Rodneyist, to me, it means that I'm anti-imperialist, I'm anti-colonial, I'm anti-neo-colonial, um, I'm anti-war, um, and I'm for Black liberation, right? And then solidarity with other marginalized and oppressed communities. Yeah, no, I feel you a thousand percent. I know for myself, especially going to Cal and, you know, you have all these white quote unquote socialists and white quote unquote Marxists and these white quote unquote communists. Like for me, initially, I was like turned away from it until I read Huey Newton. You feel me? And like, it was really black Marxists that, that brought me into this, in this politic, you know, but white Marxists have this very chauvinist attitude to where they think it's, you know, the, the white shit is the end all be all. <laughs> and if you don't follow this exact <laughs> Marx like, quote, shit don't this got exact no analysis, my nigga, like when that's only gonna get me so far. <laughs> and I'm still getting information. Yeah, it's, for- <laughs> and it's useless. That's, you know, I always say when, when ideology turns into dogmatism, that shit is useless. Like I don't give a, you know, I have no interest in memorizing, you know, Capital volume one or whatever, fuck that. Like anybody, <laughs> that's not the point. The point is we need tools for struggle. We need tools for political liberation and political education and consciousness raising period. And so I'm not about to debate the fucking merits of Trotsky versus Lenin. Like, I'll leave that to the white folks who are not starving, who are not being brutalized by the police, who do, who are not um, houseless, right? They they can debate the merits of that shit. Like, we don't have time for that. We need tools. And so to me, you know, George Jackson, if you will, right? Um, these are the people who had tools, right? And it just so happened that they also tended to be Marxist Leninists and sometimes malice, right? And so that's, you know, that's it. You mentioned how black Marxism embodies being anti-neocolonial. Can you describe neocolonialism for our listeners? Yeah, so Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first uh, president of Ghana when it gained independence in 1957, argued that neocolonialism was the last stage of imperialism. And of course he's ripping off of um, Vladimir Lenin, who argued that imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, right? So I'm going to read a quote, a couple of quotes from Walter Rodney, of course, because that's the, my man's, um, where he described neocolonialism. He said, quote, in a previous era, it was permissible and understandable that people merely said we are struggling for independence, which means freedom from the white man's rule. But at a later stage, when this freedom was supposedly achieved in a number of African countries, then the material conditions of life did not radically alter. And then the cultural conditions were not radically transformed. And then the social structure, the political structure was merely transformed only insofar as it allowed a new possessing class to take place or to take control, end quote. And so basically what he said, like neocolonialism is like, it's an end of formal colonial administration, but then all of the structures of colonialism are held into place, but you just might have, it might be Africanized, meaning that there might be African heads of state, but all of the economic relations, all of the political orientation remains the same. So then uh, Walter Rodney also talks about the distinction then between an anti-colonial and an anti-neocolonial consciousness. Um, he said, 
when I was in Jamaica in 1960, I would say that already my consciousness of West Indian society was not that we needed to fight the British, but that we needed to fight the British, the Americans, and their indigenous lackeys. That I see as an anti or that I see as an anti neo-colonial consciousness, as distinct from a purely anti-colonial consciousness. So. Neocolonialism is the reproduction of like colonial or capitalist relations just with just through like corporations, for example, or through a ruling elite who might look like you, but they don't have your interests in mind. Think Barack Obama or Kamala Harris. Um, and so it's essentially a condition where a state appears to be sovereign, but they continue to be subjected to political control, control from um, outside forces. Um, they continue to be controlled by foreign capital and despite black independence, and they don't really sever the colonial ties with either European nations or with the United States. And some argue now also that China has a neo-colonial role in Africa as well. Um, and also in neo-colonial formations, imperial countries like the United States will use like economic sanctions um, to punish countries or they'll use aid to um, undermine the sovereignty of a nation. And um, often they'll also use military might to overpower weaker nations. And so this means that some type of outside power has a capacity to destabilize, overthrow, or directly invade um, a particular nation. And they also, they often do it like in the name of freedom and democracy. So that to me, that's in a nutshell, neocolonialism. So essentially for me, this means like also like this idea of representation has come up a lot, especially in Twitter or, you know, CNN and, you know, the first black president or the first black vice president, you know, um, but when you look at their actions, all they're doing is actions for this white supremacist imperialist project known as America. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like what Kamala Harris's uh, vice presidency means for, you know, black America? Is this really progress or, or what is it, you know? Mm, it's intersectional imperialism. Next question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think, you know, so by, Kamala Harris's vice presidency means this, whatever Barack Obama's presidency meant, which is just mere rep it's representation and recognition without redistribution or reparation, right? Um, it's you know, it's, it's just a chip in the cookie, if you will, or, you know, and as I said previously, um, when I was on a live stream with um, Jackie Lukeman, basically, you know, it's a Black woman being positioned as the mammy of empire, like she is, you know, um, reproducing the system, but then becomes one of the faces of it. So for example, they have been in um, power all of a month, and already they have bombed Somalia, they've deported uh, hundreds of Haitian and other, you know, black um, immigrants. And, you know, they still like ran us this dough. Like, where is I, <laughs> where is our money, Kamala? That's what I want to know. And not $1,400, two racks and two racks a month. So anyway, that's what I think it means. Like, I, you know, she is, is, is purely representation. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything, you know, for the people who are like, well, now black girls can imagine they can see themselves reflected and they can imagine they can achieve. Fuck that. I don't want my children or any children that I love to aspire to be the face of empire. Come period. On. Come on. And if they, and if they only had, have the capacity to believe 
because of Kamala or Barack Obama, what does that say about us as a community and how we're raising up our kids? That they have to look to these handkerchief heads, <laughs> to use a Malcolm X phrase, to, to be inspired. Like, that's wild to me. And I think that that's whack. So. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about how these neoliberals will weaponize, you know, Kamala being black, being a woman, um, to excuse the state sanctioned violence that she has already participated in when you're talking about the deport deportation of Haitians, when you talk about the bombing of Somalia. Yeah. Um, and let us not forget, you know, her laughing with zeal that she was locking up particularly black mothers for truancy, right? And this is when she was what the attorney general of California, something like this. As well as the, uh, um, the DA of uh, San Francisco. Yeah, the DA of San Francisco. I don't be known. I don't follow her like that. I don't know what she do. I know she is some cop shit. My cop period. is a cop, so, you know. <laughs> um, but I think that, so uh, one of my comrades named Erica Keynes talks about identity reductionism. And so that's, that's what Kamala, uh, Kamala represents where only her identity matters. Nothing else about her matters. It's like, ooh, chucks and pearls, ooh, ski veep, like all this stuff. Ooh, she went to Howard. But when we look at her policies, there's nothing about her existence that says she cares about black people, right? And Kwame Ture talks about how we have to be ruthless with class struggle within our own communities because these black petty bourgeois Negroes, they have, you know, they're ostensibly the leaders of the race, although I didn't get no vote, right? I, I don't know. Anyway, they're ostensibly the leaders of the race and they don't do anything to change our structural and material conditions. And in fact, they strengthen the police state. They strengthen imperialism against racialized nations. Um, they continue austerity policies that that push us down to the brink of, of bare life, so to speak. And so I think um, the issue with Kamala is that she, her being a black woman or a biracial woman, I guess, Jamaican and Indian, I don't know, however she self-identifies, is that, you know, she legitimates empire through this idea of equal opportunity, through this idea that we're on this racial linear progress narrative that each, you know, as we move through time, things are getting better and better racially, and also through this idea of inclusion, right, that, um, you know, she's included into the, the, the dominant society, or she, you know, she's at the second most powerful, um, position in, you know, the most powerful country ostensibly in the world. And that's supposed to mean progress. And then we got like this whole black girl magic and black women save America narrative that is really, really detrimental. There's nothing to celebrate about Kamala Harris, nothing. There's nothing that um, should be emulated by our children. It is nothing we should aspire toward. And it's something that we need to guard against as a community in my perspective. Yeah, a thousand percent. I think that's why, you know, having like a, a international lens is so important because it's like, what does it mean for black folks in America to have a vice president when that vice president is literally dropping bombs in Somalia, when that vice president and the president is deporting Haitians, is deporting people back to the continent? You feel me? Like, that's what they're doing. And then I think that's why the, the internet, and if you look at what they did to black people here, like Kamala Harris' whole track record is locking niggas up put in trans women into men's prisons 
locking up black parents. So it's like, why are, you know, as you said, why are we celebrating this shit? Yeah, and we need to understand that things like, you know, AFRICOM, um, you know, Southcom are related to the 1033 program here. And the 1033 is what's leading to the militarization of these police forces, especially in cities like Baltimore, Atlanta, Detroit. And what it means is that the federal government is selling military equipment at a discounted rate to these police forces. And these occupying forces that we call police are using tanks, right? They're using drones. They're using these high grade weapons against racialized people, black racialized, marginalized, poor, oppressed people, right? And so we can see the relationship between the militarism abroad and the militarized way, the, the oppressive way in which these occupying forces relate to specifically poor racialized and black people. And so we need to make these connections that imperialism starts at home, right? Imperialism is part of domestic policy and foreign policy. And that in fact, that bifurcation between the two is false. That the ways in which black people are treated here is the ways in which, you know, black, excuse me, black and other, you know, uh, racialized people are treated abroad. And it's all related to the, the absolute disdain for the masses. It's related to this drive to accumulate wealth and to expropriate resources and labor no matter what. And so we really, really need to have, and Kamala does nothing to challenge that. In fact, she does everything in her power to make it easier to do so. And so that's the problem. That's the enemy. That's not anybody who, who is acting in our interest. Thousand percent, you know, you just mentioned AFRICOM. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what AFRICOM is um, and what it does? Yeah, so I want to send your listeners to the Black Alliance for Peace website where we have a whole campaign about AFRICOM and, and information about it. But essentially AFRICOM is like the Africa Command. It's, it's um, the setup of military bases all throughout the continent to make it easier to ostensibly combat terrorism. But really is is basically, again, a sort of neo-colonial formation where, um, you know, the U.S. has at their ready on the African continent, you know, means of extraordinary force to do things like extract resources to, to you know, in the name of, of um, combating terrorism or combating, you know, threats to our national security. So it's a very, um, it's a very violent and like I said, neo-colonial reality that is linked to the fact that the United States has 800 bases, 800 military bases throughout the world, and even more sort of black sites and things of that nature. So it just shows the wise, the breadth of U.S. imperialism and the way in which Africa is becoming more and more strategically important because of all of the minerals and, and, the, and the cheap labor that is um, available there. And of course, the, with the rising, you know, the U.S. constructing China as a rising threat and um, China's present in, presence in Africa, there's even more legitimation for AFRICOM, which again is nothing more than a militarized occupying force. It's, it's wild to think that the forces that colonize the continent are supposed to be the forces that protect it from outside terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> like that is the motherfucking right, as terrorist. if they're not the terrorists right exactly like are you kidding me like you are the terror period 
And it's like, no surprise that you have AFRICOM and then you have, you know, these, you know, in my opinion, then they're also to protect these corporations like Mars, like Nestle, that is literally using the forced labor of, of children, of African children, you know, the enslavement of African children to, to boost these corporations or to take, you know, the minerals and the resources for cars like Tesla and shit like that. Like, it's all just, you know, corporate imperialism in a way, too, in my opinion. Yeah, so corporate imperialism is basically, you know, one aspect of neocolonialism, because remember, it's not just, it's sort of like the end of the formal colonial administration, whereas like one state or nation colonizing another, now it is corporations. And now it's also, you know, places like the United States that claim they don't have an empire, claim that they never had colonies, which we know that's false, but then they create conditions of dependency, of underdevelopment, and of um, what's called extroversion. So they, they create these same types of economic conditions through things like um, bilateral trade agreements, through direct invasions, through coups, um, and through, you know, these really rapacious and plunderous economic relationships, even though they don't have, even though these nations have flag independence. And so these corporations, mind you, have GDPs or they have sort of assets that are more than some of these nation states. So they're very rich because of the plunder that they engage in, but they're very rich and they're very powerful. They donate massive amounts of money to to each party right to the duopoly and this is what allows them you know to get the policies both you know internationally to be able to continue this this plunder so it's you know it's all bad <laughs> um we've been talking about the the black radical tradition and we wanted to speak on uh, claudia jones for a little bit so can you talk about claudia jones and her significance to the black radical tradition yeah, so um, so I, I study a particular period of Claudia Jones's life, so I can't speak to um, everything about her. But basically, so Claudia, so the period I look at is really between 1935 and 1955. And this is when she was a leading member and then a, a leader, of, a member of the National Committee of the Communist Party of the USA. She came to the United States when she was very young and is from a working class family. In fact, she got sick when she was young from doing onerous labor and, and you know, she had heart problems, um, including congestive heart failure for the rest of her life as a result of that, right? And so she had firsthand experience of, of labor exploitation. And so she got, she was interested in the Communist Party because of their work around the Scottsboro boys. So these nine boys who were falsely convicted of raping two white women and the work the Communist Party was doing to exonerate them. Um, and then the ways in which the Communist Party linked that case to the invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. And so she saw this, so this is in the height of Jim Crow. She saw an organization like a white or interracial organization that was prioritizing the struggles of black people. And so she joined, right? And, um, you know, so she, she probably, she's most well known for her, her idea of triple oppression which analyzes the ways in which Black women are oppressed as workers, as Black folks, and as women. Um, but she also, to me, I think about her as a theorist of racial capitalism because she brought together all the elements that I use to define racial capitalism. Um, she was, a, you know, she, she called out creeping fascism in the United States after World War II. 
She critiqued um, Wall Street imperialism. She was an advocate of black self-determination. So um, she has a piece called on the, right of self, uh, on the Right to Self-Determination of Negro People in the Black Belt when she was arguing that, you know, black people, um, black people are a nation and that black people are nationally oppressed. And we, you know, if we choose to succeed from the US, we have <laughs> every right to do so, that we have every right to self-determination. Um, she critiqued imperialism in the Caribbean. So she just did some of everything. And then once she was deported, she's known in Great Britain for starting um, Carnival over there. But, you know, here she was just a tireless advocate for workers, for women, for Black women, and for oppressed and marginalized people. She was for peace and peace, not in this kumbaya way, but peace as, you know, the end of warmongering, as the end of imperialism, the end of colonialism, and, you know, the end of, of racism. Um, and she also was somebody who, so my work focuses on the intersections of anti-Blackness and anti-radicalism. She was also doing that work. She was also talking about the ways in which anti-communism was used to target Black people struggling on behalf of civil rights. She also recognized that part of her deportation was because she was a Black radical. Um, she was a Black radical and she was a quote unquote foreigner, right? She wasn't born in the United States. And so they saw her as extremely dangerous. So anyway, she just, you know, she's dope. I think everybody should should study her. So one book um, written by Carol Boyce Davies is called uh, Left of Karl Marx. And that's the sort of biography of Claudia Jones. There's also a collected volume of her work called Claudia Jones Beyond Containment. It's her theoretical writings because she was also a journalist. So she had all of her sort of theoretical writings, but then she also did a lot of journalism um, that you know she published in The Daily Worker. So anyway, I could go on and on. I'm rambling at this point, but um, that's Claudia Jones. My girl, check her out. Her birthday was yesterday. Um, or I guess it was a Sunday, February 21st. I don't know when this will air. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading um an end to the ne neglect of the problems of the Negro woman. And I was just realizing like, damn, like there's so many black women uh radicals have been talking about intersectionality, you know, what we know today as intersectionality for years before you, you know, the term was even uh coined or popularized. Yeah, I don't think I wouldn't call what she was doing intersectionality. I, I see them as distinct, but <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> um, but to your point, yeah. So or the intersection, I guess whole, you could say, is a better way. Um. So she just talked about triple oppression. <laughs> and for yeah. her, I mean, she didn't use none of that language. And she just talked about how she, al she also thought the Negro question was prior to the woman question, meaning that she saw race as central to the ways in which capital operated in the United States. Like she just knew that, right? Period. Um, but even before her, there was some um, a woman called Louise Thompson Patterson who wrote about triple exploitation. And she wrote this in a piece called Toward a Brighter Dawn. And she also talked about how women are were oppressed because of their sex, because of their position in the labor market and because they're black. And before that, um, two communists, Cyril Briggs and Eugene Gordon, wrote um, a piece called The Position of Negro Women, where they talk about they talked about the double handicap. So they took for granted that women were workers. And they talked about how because black women workers were black and women, they suffered, you know, the lowest wages, horrible working conditions. Um, you know, they were let they were foreclosed from particular um, industries altogether, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a really long 
history of analyzing the multimodal ways in which Black women suffer at the, um, you know, they suffer because of exploitation and oppression. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so there's a, a long, a sort of long history of that. But um, I don't, you know, I don't call it intersectionality because I think the political projects are different. But, you know, most people will see one, see triple oppression as the precursor to intersectionality. So, you know. You know, I hear that. Thanks. Thanks, you know, for correcting me. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> she let me know when I'm wrong. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so you got a book coming out you know, upcoming book, uh, Black Scare, Red Scare. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know you've kind of mentioned a little bit about it um, in terms of your discussion and whatnot, but. Yeah, so it's called Black Scare, Red Scare, Anti-Blackness, Anti-Communism, and the Rise of Capitalism in the United States. And essentially, I'm looking at the rise of the United States to global hegemony, so to global domination between World War One and the early Cold War. Um, because of what I call capitalist racism. So I'm trying to think alongside racial capitalism, but develop my own theoretical framework for understanding um, specifically the, the um, entanglements of the political economy of Blackness, anti-communism, anti-Blackness, and imperialism. And so basically, you know, my book brings together the Black Scare, which is basically this, this fear of racial, social, and um, political economic domination of white folks by Black people. And then the Red Scare, which is the threat of anti-capitalist takeover, infiltration, and disruption of the American way of life um, that basically demonizes communists or, or so-called fellow travelers. And so in my work, I see these things as mutually constitutive, um, that because of a system of capitalist racism, you have to construct as enemies those who challenge capitalism and those who challenge racism. And, and in terms of those who challenge racism, it's those who challenge it on their own terms, not through liberalism, um, but through a sort of radical understanding of what I call the structural location of Blackness or the sort of the, the political economy of Blackness, so the economic function that Blackness serves. So that's the book. Um, it's, uh, I think it's dope. It'll be out when it's done. <laughs> I'm working <laughs> on it. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit hard um, to write, especially, you know, there, it's a panty and I'm not somebody that writes in my house. I always write in the world, like in cafes or whatever. And so it's been a little bit difficult trying to be, you know, productive in my home. So, but I'm getting through it. Um, yeah, so that's the book. I'm just hoping to point out the ways in which we can't understand anti-Blackness without understanding anti-radicalism. Um, and we can't understand anti-radicalism without understanding anti-Blackness. And so the aversion that the U.S. state has to socialism and communism is very much linked to the hatred of Black people in this country. Um, you know, not least because it's only very recently that Black people stopped being capital. <laughs> so yeah yeah when when you're done with that you got to send us um some early copies so we can read it and then bring you back on to, to discuss it uh, my pleasure i'd be happy to you you but, mentioned um, you mentioned um the united states being anti-socialist because it's anti-black can you talk about the connections between anti-socialism and anti-blackness 
Yeah. So if you think, if you believe that the U.S. is racial capitalism, that means has a system of, of a political economy that's rooted in economic exploitation and racial domination, particularly with Black folks at the bottom, then you can see why people who mobilize against the system of capitalism and the people who mobilize against racial hierarchy will be, be seen as dangerous and subversive and threatening. And the other reason why the U.S., tends to be anti-socialist is because historically these organizations were, at least in theory, um, for racial equality and because they were interracial, right? There's also some anti-Semitism in there for sure. And this idea that all of socialism or communism is foreign inspired. So that's one, so that's, you know, the reason the US hates socialism for all those reasons. And then it particularly targeted Black communists or socialists or radicals because they brought together like the two biggest threats to, you know, to the social order, to social relations. These are people who are struggling for rights for Black folks on the one hand, and they're also struggling for economic redistribution. And so, you know, the, the tactics that the U.S. historically used against Black folks they begin to use against communists. So for example, the circumscription of movement, keeping black people from moving freely, they also started to do this to communists through, for example, canceling their passports and making it so they could not travel abroad. And this happened to a whole bunch of, of communists, but it, you know, two notable ones are Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, so there's, there's much, much more to it, but basically, and you, and you know, one way that we see it contemporarily is that you notice that there was all of this talk about Antifa and outside agitation when there was all of this, these black protests, right? So we didn't hear about no Antifa or no outside agitators with Wall, you know, Occupy Wall Street, which was a more, you know, I'm sure there was some black folks in there too, like Occupy Oakland. I know there was black people, but you know, I, by and large, that was the sort of quote unquote white 99%. But when you when you begin to have black people acting in ways that are other than peaceful, you know, whatever, when, when black people start turning up, right, there's always this talk of like outside agitation, or, of, you know, and there was even some, you know, talk about the socialists and communists and all this stuff. And so, you know, there's always this idea that black people are being riled up from the outside, that it's not our own righteous anger, and challenge to police brutality and oppression and overall, you know, just overall, <laughs> racism and exploitation like it has to be some type of outside agitation so that's a contemporary example like we in our own liberators <laughs> exactly exactly um so you you just joined a, a network called the the black power network and then you also got a show uh it's called the last dope intellectual right yep i do you talk a little bit more it's, about that it's black power media black power yeah media. so black power media is basically like a collective of, of black radical media that's meant to provide an alternative to the mainstream um, mainstream narratives and mainstream discourses, right? We are inundated with like CNN, Fox News, um, MSNBC, all that type of stuff. And so we wanna give folks who, um, you know, not even just folks who are on the black left, but folks who are looking for consciousness raising, folks who are looking for alternative interpretations or alternative analyses of society. We want to provide a, a whole platform 
for that type of work. And so my show, The Last of Intellectual, it does it from a sort of academic perspective. I talk about a lot of different things, but I also analyze like what it means to be a black radical in the academy. I talk a lot about black, you know, black radical history, um, that sort of thing. And then there's other shows. So um, Renegade Culture is a dope podcast based in Atlanta. They're part of it. Of course, I mix what I like, which is Jared's whole um, media apparatus. Um, Rosa Clemente is going to have her show soon. Um, a professor called Sundiata Chajua, who's a revolutionary nationalist and Marxist. He'll have his show called Real Talk. Um, no Name is going to have a monthly show. Um, so it's a lot. Like we we out here, we, um, we're just trying to provide... Um, to combat the bourgeois, <laughs> the bourgeois discourse that permeates society. And so at the very least, people can't say they didn't know better because this channel is here. So of course we would love for Hella Black to um to hop on, tap in, be part of our collective. So um that's Black Power Media. I'm dope what y'all got going on. I've I've been seeing um I've been following Jared for a long time and I've seen that he, he's had his, his hands and feet in a lot of different um, mediums. And so, yeah, hopefully there, there is a way for us to collab and I, you know, I'm wishing y'all the best and hopefully y'all can keep it up because y'all been killing it. Thank you. Yeah. So we, you know, I'll be following up with you <laughs> until you bend to my will. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but definitely it's, you know, hopefully we want to have all sorts, all different types of media as we grow as a platform. So, um, you know, hopefully your listeners will tap in, um, become members of the, of the channel and all that stuff. So, yeah. So where can the people find you at? Um, I'm at home. It's a panty, but <laughs> I'd be on social well, media. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you were asking. Right. Um, so I'm I'm on Twitter. <laughs> I'm on Twitter, um, Black Left AF, and also on Instagram, same thing, Black Left AF. And then my show is called The Last Dope Intellectual. It's on the Black Power Media channel on YouTube. And my show drops every Friday, 7 p.m. Eastern, um, 6 p.m. Central. What that is, 5 p.m., 4 p.m., Pacific, I, I don't oh. know. 4 p.m. Pacific. Sorry, I, I ain't good at math. So I'll let y'all figure out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, like all these time zones. So yeah, yeah. so check that out too. 